Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling with or without the upside down in his midst is my friend and co-host, Adam. With. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on the night. Tonight, yeah. Some days you're upside down free, some days you're not, just depending on on the day, right? (laughs) Sometimes I get the uh, upside down tingle on the back of my neck. Ah, yeah, the buyer tingle or the will will tingle. Does it have an official name? Did they? I know when Demodogs came around, that was the official name inside the universe. Does does Will, without spoiling anything, does he get like a little spidery tingle like name or? You know, that's a good question. I don't think I don't ever recall them giving it a name. At least not yet. I call it the Will bumps. I think is what I called it. Will bumps. There you go. Will bumps. Yeah. Will bumps instead of the uh, instead of the goosebumps. The, the, yes, they are goosebumps. I've heard his uh, his goosebumps being referred as as the Steins. He's got the Steins, like Arl Stein, mm. the goosebumps. Yeah, right, so he's right. got well, he's got the Steins going on. <laughs> anytime Definitely. there's a little woo of the uh, the mind flare or whatever. Yeah, a little flickering of the lights and a sign of bad things. But yeah. hey, before yeah. we kick off, because we had fun doing this last time, I am going to pull out a couple questions from Stranger Things, back to the 80s, Trivial Pursuit. And see Man, this is good. If you can do this. Cool. And, and I did confirm, by the way, that this was released in like the spring of 2019. So it predates season three, which we are currently covering so there's no concern about any spoilers whatsoever so it's all based on your knowledge of seasons one and two and of course just general (laughs) 80s trivia i'm gonna ask you a stranger things question first and then maybe just a general 80s question in season two according to dustin what would serve as paddles on his curiosity voyage oh man this is a Hold little, on. little. Uh, it was the oh, it, yeah. It's uh, library books. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because he was it. talking to the. I wasn't quite sure. I remember that. That's right. Yeah, you really have to remember to the, the context of the scene. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's that's yep. a tough one. He had like twelve books checked out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, let's try one more. The title of what movie is seen on the Hawkins Movie Theater marquee in season two? Now, I actually called attention to this so i hope you remember oh it's man. a if you also um, a, a clue would be the year is 1984 so it would have to be a sure, 1984 movie. sure oh gosh and this is not the season where steve is getting rid of the junk no, he put um, on the marquee no this, yeah, not, this is season no. two so yeah this that was season yeah, he, one because he, he and that. he and nancy yeah. were together in season two right um i don't remember that's one i don't remember that's okay. No, no, it's okay. It's the Terminator. Oh man, ah, it's okay. Darn. I know. I just I want to know all the questions, the answers to the questions. Of course. Well, here you'll you'll get this one. This is a, a, just an '80s movie question. Okay. The movie The Natural follows the life of Roy Hobbs and his career playing what sport? <laughs> oh, baseball. That's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Last one. Uh, what category would you like? 
Well, TV what, show podcast. TV, Give me some TV. Give me some television. Okay, let's do it. Which game debuted on The Price is Right in 1983, challenging players to drop a disc down a vertical board covered in pegs? That's easy. It's called <laughs> Plinko. <laughs> I could not remember. You got it. You, I think, yeah, you I got three remember. out of four. That's pretty good. 75%. I think you, you win. <laughs> Yeah. All right. You pass. I love a good C average. I, got, I love it's a good pass C fail average. situation. <laughs> okay, good. All right. So now it's time for the actual episode discussion. Hope you've enjoyed the pregame that we've done. That was our cold open in preparation <laughs> of the show's cold open. Here come the credits, and credits <laughs> yeah. are over. All right. We are really starting where the last episode left off. We have the elevator. Looks like it's plummeting to its death, at least based on the reaction of the three that are in there. <laughs> Everyone's screaming, but then it stops. And then when it finally does, Steve's upset because the buttons don't work, even though they should, because why would they be there? Good question, Steve. I'm asking the same question. That's why we need Robin to step in and say, you know, there's probably a key card that you have to put in there before the button actually works. So Robin's intuition, Robin's knowledge, her intelligence is continuing to come alive glad she's a part of this cast nepo baby or not i think she's fantastic yes. <laughs> in this i think she's a great addition to this trio at this point between well i, I say trio it's now i guess a quadrip whatever erica half three 3.5 <laughs> a quad but a uh, quadrilogy yeah. well that's movies oh i don't know what it is anyway with these four <laughs> or three either. and a half yeah yeah erica's being erica again you said something really really helpful for me last time in that the things she's saying do not equate to the age in which she's saying them. Like these are very right. much more mature preteen to like 15, 16, 17 year old language. And I think that's where the problem is, is that she's overly sarcastic and, and that can be right. played for laughs and it does. But here I think, I think because it's amplified by her age, by her, that, that dissonance that I feel, I think that's why it's not working for me as well as some of these other kids who we've grown up with. And so what I feel like is we have Erica who basically speaks the same kind of language as a Mike or a Lucas or a Dustin, but because of her age, it just feels very dissonant. Yeah, I agree. And in this scene in particular, she's making a joke about how if she doesn't get home to her friend her mom's gonna slit their throats like what nine or ten year old talks like that it's it's really just yeah it's off-putting i'm not saying it ruins the show or anything but it, it definitely i think was a a miss on the part of the show creators and that i don't think she's behaving the way someone of her age should be behaving and again like you yeah. said it's meant to be funny it's meant to be like oh this is just a a crazy little you know, funny young girl who talks like she's 15 or 16. I just don't know when and how a girl in a small town like this would have heard or learned all the things. She knows what a comms room is. Like, again, I have a daughter who's nine. Like, she doesn't know what a comms room is in a military opera, you know, base. So I just feel like this is a little far-fetched. <laughs> So the, the believability, even for a show that has Demogorgons and right. Demodogs and Mind Flayers, it's a little much of a stretch for me, too. Uh, meanwhile, Dustin sees the vents, and they climb on top, realizing that they are way down there. This shot is so cool. Had some lost vibes as the yeah. 
camera pans back and we realize that they are way down. Like this is not just like the basement level. This is like almost center of the earth type stuff. And I've got to wonder because at this point we sort of put the pieces together that Starcourt, the company is a front for Russian nefariousness and they've built this thing underneath. But the fact that it's so far down, I kind of wonder is this the depth that like the sub basement of Hawkins lab was? Because I didn't think it was that deep. Like I thought there was some kind of threshold, but this feels really, really deep. Yeah. Like I feel like in those episodes where they take the elevators down, they might be going down three or four flights down, but it never felt like this felt like they dropped 30 or 40 stories down, you know, in a matter of seconds or minutes. I mean, they were falling at high velocity for a long time. So it feels much, much deeper. And this whole underground facility actually kind of reminds me of this docuseries that Jesse Ventura used to do called Conspiracy Theory. He basically like picks a a common conspiracy theory and kind of investigates it in the show. And, And one of them was the rumor that the U.S. government built like a massive underground base underneath the Denver International Airport in the early 90s. And it's it's actually kind of an interesting investigation with a lot of question marks that go unanswered. And it's the same kind of premise that like basically they started building this airport as a front so that they could be constantly building something underneath it. And so that's kind of the concept that they're presenting here, that somehow this mall was constructed in Hawkins, Indiana. And while it was being constructed, they were able to dig down underneath and build this secret laboratory at the same time as a cover for it. And, you know, it's kind of an ingenious way to do it, really, because like no one's going to be looking even on a satellite. No one's going to be thinking there's anything suspicious going on if you're building something like a mall or an airport on the surface. You just assume they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So it's uh, it's kind of a, a clever ploy, if you will, to trick people yeah. all around you. Yeah, it's very classic, that conspiracy theory you talk about playing into the Russians being the bad guys. And right. I think the, right. the Duffers know how to take a trope and refresh it a bit. When you're dealing with the 80s, you're going to be dealing with tropes just by default. So how much do you lean into whatever these are. And they, they've done that. They've leaned in heavily to some, but I think that for the most part, I've been very satisfied with these tropes because they feel a little bit more refreshed or they feel mm-hmm. nostalgic, but not nostalgic to the point where they're required. Like the nostalgia is required for my entertainment. It's not like you could make this and set this in the nineties or today because the events that take place don't require the eighties. They're amplified by that nostalgia And I think that's why, in general, this series is so popular, because it touches so many different demographics of ages and and whatnot. So it's been fun to see how they play with that. To me, I think as showrunners, it shows a level of maturity because you're not relying on that thing in order to make your story better. Right. They didn't decide at first, we're going to make a show about the 80s, and then what should happen? No. The Montauk Project Experiment, which this is based on, that was the premise for the show. They they were originally going to be in Long Island, New York, and that was going to be where the experiments were taking place. And it kind of evolved into Hawkins, Indiana in the 80s and turned into something a little different. But that's because the underlying story and concept was very solid and something that 
was very relatable to, like you said, a lot of different demographics. So we cut from there over to Hopper and Joyce. Um, they're going to that last abandoned property. I think it's the last of three. Well, it's the one that has the machine. So it's like the right. last place you look. Well, of course it is because you're not going right. to go to another property. So it's the Hess farm. And I wanted to ask, I may have missed something. Maybe it's something in a later episode or in the series, but there was a intentionality to hanging on the mailboxes had Hess property. So I don't know, is Hess significant to the series? Should it be at this point? Well, the Hess truck is back and it's better than ever. So okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I tried to say that very seriously. It, uh, no, I don't know of any connection to any other character on the show or any homage to uh, any other movie or, or 80s reference other than yeah. the Hess gas stations that I'm aware of. But yeah, <laughs> that's well, it. I just I didn't know if there was a, a family or if it was something that camera shots are not unintentional. And so when you right. pan back and you see the motorcycle pull up and it says Hess in the foreground on the mailbox, that could just be, hey, this is the place we're at. And there may have been dialogue about, right. oh, yeah, right. the Hess people were, they were aliens before they came here and they did whatever. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. But I, I just thought there was some significance to that. There, I guess there could be a very minor significance in that when we fir first see them pull up to this third abandoned property, you see the Hess sign. And then a little later, mm -hmm. when we see the big Russian dude pull up on his motorcycle we see the Hess sign. So at least we know they're, they're at the same location. It's a way of, otherwise gotcha. it just looked like abandoned homes. So maybe it's just something as sure. simple as we wanted you to know that this guy was like hot on their tail essentially. And mm -hmm. that they're in okay, danger. Yeah. That, so yeah, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but the right. Duffer brothers <laughs> make me think differently. Right. <laughs> right. And that's probably what they want. They want you to be second guessing or questioning everything you're watching and seeing so that it's, uh, it makes it that much more suspenseful and, and meaningful to you. At this point, I'm looking for hidden meanings in the opening credits, right? <laughs> it's things right. Like that, how deep it goes. So they go to the property. They see a car in the driveway, coffee cup on the table, cigarettes in an ashtray on a chair. So obviously people are there. Someone's been there. The lights keep flickering on and off. And this is really interesting because we've known mythologically that flickering lights usually indicate the coming of something supernatural. In this case, it's not. It's the machine that's doing the flickering of the lights by right. drawing power and whatnot. And so they're fading on and off. They move to a bedroom and they hear this hum. Joyce is like, I don't know where it's coming from. So she gets on the floor and that's when she sees the little crack underneath the bed. And we get the whole like reveal that the bed is actually a door and it reveals a staircase. And I'm like, all right, more stuff underground. Hopefully it's not 25 stories deep. We can just go down a short staircase instead of walking down and wasting half the episode of them just walking downstairs. <laughs> so fortunately right, it's not right. that way that they're just going to the basement or to the, uh, the crawl space or, or whatever it is. There's nothing deeper than that, <laughs> but it's definitely like more of a laboratory space. It's not like a basement. I would say it's more of like a finished underground facility. It's not sub level 50, like the other characters are in, but it's clearly somehow connected to the broader Russian facility that's been constructed underneath a vast part of Hawkins. I think it's a Russian man cave because there's a Russian man 
there. So that's, there you go. <laughs> that's the that's way you cave. define it. And, yeah. There's actually two two Russian <laughs> men, so it's a men cave at this right. point. <laughs> One of the Russians is the scientist that we first saw in the opening of the first season. He was the one that was given, uh, you know, after the Darth Vader moment and the older Russian scientist was killed, <laughs> yeah. we are introduced to this younger Russian scientist and uh, who's, yeah. has a, who has one year, right? Remember he said he has one year to, to figure it out. And that's yes. him. And this is Alexi, right? That we find out his name is Alexi. Alexi. That's who I'm referring to. Yeah. We learn yeah. his name in this episode. Or Smirnoff, as Hopper likes to continue to call him, despite the <laughs> right. fact that he knows his name. I think that's a great running joke throughout the episode. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very Hopper, too. It's very much. It very much so. Yeah. Personality. <laughs> You know, I think in some ways it's Hopper's way of putting emotional distance between him and this character, because if he considers him just smearing off like some nameless Russian, he can't right. have any kind of emotional connection to him. And I think that's, again, played for laughs, but I think there's some psychological interesting things going on here that, you know, look, you're always going to be the Russian stereotype. I'm not going to believe that you're anything more than that. You're not human at this point. You're just smeared off. Right. And, and, and Joyce being the yeah. humanitarian, she's like, it's, it's Alexi. <laughs> exactly. Meanwhile, a biker shows up. It's our guy, Drago of Hawkins or whatever the Terminator. <laughs> I mean, he he resembles so many of these like characters that we know. It's it really he really does look like a composite of the T1000 and the T2000 from Terminator 2. Like if you merge these two actors together and the way he walks, the way he he just postures himself, this is basically yes. like a composite Terminator, which is great. And then you add that he's Russian. Now it's Drago Terminator at this point. Draganator. Right. We're going to call him or something like that. And there's no question that they, that they absolutely intended for us to get that reference. You know, this is almost like a Terminator coming after them in this entire show. He comes down with the big old Russian gun. Maybe it's an American gun. It might be American gun because the guy speaks American. He speaks English, which was a surprise to me and slightly Russian accent. But as you said, he is a Russian actor in real life. Yeah. Yeah. And he's on cameo as well. Yeah. I can't pronounce the actor's name right this minute, but is a Russian actor. He was obviously cast because of that, but he speaks, you know, he speaks well in English as well. So that that's important because I think every other Russian character we've met doesn't speak any English. So he, he clearly does. And that's that's convenient because we need him to we need to understand him. <laughs> yes. And know where he's coming yeah. from. Yep. And he and Hopper, round two. Hopper kinda holds his own a little bit better here. I think he's more prepared. He's less drunk or he's kind of right. sobered up a little bit. Eventually they escape with Alexi. I think it's fantastic that Hopper thinks to when they lower the bed to put the bookshelf on top so oh, that yeah. the bed can't raise. I wouldn't have thought of that. Like I really wouldn't have had that kind of ink. I would have just been taking off, but it definitely saved them some time because in yep. her panic, Joyce doesn't know how to grab keys and open the door. And Hopper, he's, he's the star of the show at this point in this scene where he's right. like, Joyce, drive, I'm Joyce, trying. please, Joyce, drive. It's so hilarious. And Joyce is kind of messing up left and right here. She throws Hopper his gun at one point and it like lands by the Russian guy. And yes. then when Hopper throws her the keys, she like misses them and drops them on the ground. So like clearly Joyce is not having a good day. But, uh, you know, Hopper is just 
he just wants to get out of there and yeah that bookshelf definitely bought them just enough time but not enough time for the cart to uh not get shot up uh, as they were peeling out of there no it made it through two and a half seasons the truck did before getting (laughs) damaged almost beyond repair i think that gets us to the opening credits which is a lot i mean a lot that is a lot this more than most i would say I was listening to an, another podcast that does a different kind of analysis, just a recap episode. And they mentioned that, I don't know if it was this episode or another one that had significantly longer or longer feeling cold opens. And I feel like this mm-hmm. feels that way. I, I'd like to actually go back at some point, my math brain, and just look at the duration of each cold open and compare them to see which was the longest and see which one perceptively felt longer. And I think it's because we only have two scenes here. Like a lot of times if there's multiple scenes, the cold open feels a little bit shorter because you're going from place to place, person to person, scene to scene. Whereas here you have a cold open that starts with like an elevator flying down to almost its death and then stoppage. And then you have a slow entry into this house that leads to a big shootout. Well, I'd say a shootout, a one person shootout and an escape. So I think in that way, that's why it feels longer because you've got a lot of action in both of these sequences with a little bit of like slowness right in the middle. So it feels almost like a miniature episode. Yeah, definitely. It definitely, I think that's for me what differentiates it is there is a lot of stuff happening all at once because it kind of the previous episode ended in such a way as that it sort of prepped the stage for all of this to happen. So like we were building up to all of these confrontations or, or events yeah. taking place. And now we kind of get the culmination all within this cold open sequence. And then after the credits, we're back at the buyer house. It's the next day, 6 a.m. Jonathan is obviously the only one at the house. We know where everybody else is. Maybe. We know where Joyce is. Nancy's calling him on the phone. They've upgraded. They've upgraded their phones. It's no longer rotary. And it's no longer a, what I would call a a hardware ring. It's actually a little like a more digitized ring. It's not like an actual bell. Right. It's a thing. So um, Nancy's calling Jonathan, telling him that she's at the hospital with Mrs. Driscoll, looking for Will, wondering if he's safe. Jonathan's like, the radar goes up. He's like, what? You mean he's probably not safe? He's asking, why wouldn't he be safe? And that, you know, that spidey sense for Jonathan starts tingling. And then we're in the woods the next day because this is what happened with the car, (laughs) the truck. It did not make it very far. Hopper's getting frustrated with his truck that broke down. Joyce is trying to talk to the Russian about her magnets and what happened. This is such a, a funny moment because you see the contrasting of these two characters, as we alluded to earlier. Hopper wants to get his car fixed. He sees the Russian as just that. Joyce sees the Russian as an opportunity to get questions answered, and she's trying to find a way to communicate. So she's like banging things together. Hey, a magnet? Magnets? Do you know magnet? Magnet? Magnet. Yes, yes magnet. Okay, so a uh, magnet on my, my fridge, my icebox, and then they, they fell. They demagnetized, stopped working. I, I, do you understand? Okay, so is that because of the machines that you're working on? Machina. Machina. Machina, yes. Yes, machina. 
and, and then he points to the truck and she's like, no, you're not getting it. So it's just this really amazing scene of showing off priority, showing off personalities and the way in which two people, well, three in the case of a Smirnoff here or Alexi, how they're <laughs> right. dealing with stress and clearly all three right. of them are dealing with it in different ways. Well, and I think we've seen now over almost three seasons that Hopper kind of regresses when he's under stress and pressure. You know, he can be a pretty mellow, kind of cool guy when things are all going well. But when he's under a stressful or pressurous situation, a different side of him kind of (laughs) emerges where he's very aggressive. And, you know, like you said, calling people names, just shouting a lot. It's definitely a character element that they play up frequently because he's frequently in these situations where he's uh, under a lot of pressure. Well, that juvenile approach really kind of bleeds off on Joyce, too, when she is trying to help him with the car. So she drops into that sort of high school, junior high language. Keep it in park, please. Yeah, duh. Do something useful. You do something useful. I mean, these are things that I would say in junior high and high school. Right. I think it speaks to their relationship and how long they've been friends. Like they're so comfortable at being friends, even though there's some tension here romantically, more than friends, not more than friends. Do I like you? Do I like, like you? There's still that sort of familiarity that they have with each other that I think having that kind of chemistry makes their relationship feel very seasoned. Like they don't look like they've been sharing the screen for a few years or a handful of episodes, they really do feel like they've been friends since high school, like these two actors and they're just dropping into like, yeah, I know what you're going to say. And I know it's going to push your buttons. You know, it's going to push mine. And it's a lot of fun to see this. Yeah. And I think anyone that you've known for that long since high school or, or younger, if you see them again, even if they look older, they look like you now, they look, you know, your age as an adult, it's still hard for you to sort of see them as anything other than how you remember them as a kid or as a teenager. So I, I think that that's where you you both kind of regress to who you were when you were younger and that you kind of pick up where you left off or where you were when you first got to know each other, first started mm-hmm. going out or whatever. In this case, we still don't really understand what the situation is, but maybe one day it will come to light. Yeah, I'm feel confident that it will. So the scene finishes up with them trying to fix the car. And I guess due to all the banter and the name calling and the juvenile delinquency, they don't realize that they're doing it wrong. And the car explodes, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the end of the truck. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they start walking. All three of them are, are taking a walk. Hopper mentions going to Illinois. And again, the sarcasm just continues to push forward. Joyce is like, are we really walking to Illinois? He's like, yeah, we should be there by Friday. I hope that works with your schedule. (laughs) But she wants to find someone local that could potentially speak Russian. And I'm thinking Hawkins, Indiana, 1985. Really? Who are you going to know? But I know they're going to find someone. And it's such a great transition because while we hear Hopper and Joyce arguing we now see another great dissolve transition into L seeing them. You know, she's basically spying on on Hopper and she right. communicates what's happening. That we're back at Mike's basement. She finds out about their plans to go to Illinois. I wonder if she makes the connection that Chicago is in Illinois and like, oh my gosh, I are we gonna go back? I thought that too. And- yeah. It's the one place she's been. <laughs> 
So yeah, so she acts like connection. she's never heard. She's she's like Illinois, ill. Like she has no idea. But no, no, you've been there. You've gone there. You know it. Yeah, yeah. But you just don't know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Notice the thing poster in the background. Classic. Uh-huh. You know, thing cover art uh, for the poster and you know for the VHS, and yep. I think that's by design. There's similar stuff happening in that movie that's like happening here. You know, who's possessed? Uh, also, very gross monster-looking yeah. things. Absolutely. And I think there's some John Carpenter tribute happening here with digital effects, and I gotta right. say, as much as I like all the creature design so far reminding me of John Carpenter's practical effects sort of takes the shine off of these a little bit because I agree. I can absolutely appreciate the practical effects and the way that Carpenter put all these creatures together. It looks a lot like that, that kind of spirit of those characters and those creatures from the thing in here. But you can definitely sense a little bit of like, yeah, this is the digital version of it. And it's still scary. Still, you know, use those sound effects, Yeah, yeah, but not quite to the level that, you know, classic Carpenter. Well, and I often have this conversation about, you know, the pros and cons of CGI, and I think there's a lot of great applications for it. It's, in many cases, easier and faster now than doing things the old John Carpenter way. But yeah, when the actors can interact with the visual effects, whether it be makeup or whether it be animatronics or just puppets, whatever it is, like there's something about it all being caught in camera and the actors interacting with it that just can't recapture that with green screens the same way. So mm-hmm. that dates us a little bit, I think, because we we can appreciate the art of practical visual effects. Right. Yeah. As part of that conversation, the boys are outside the bathroom. The girls are inside the bathroom. There's a couple of great shots here of yeah. the view from the mirror L and Max are smiling as they're joking and you can just tell that they have their bows by the, well, by something. Um, and <laughs> it's very much that cutesy juvenile, like this is how relationships work where you have girls teaming up and guys teaming up. And we've seen it before in the series and the season particularly, but it sets up some just good, like back and forth dialogue from inside the bathroom and outside the bathroom. But we find out that through these conversations, they're realizing that the mind flayer is in full effect. They don't know how to stop him. We'll suggest that maybe L knows how. And that's when Jonathan and Nancy show up to, to end the scene. So there's been conversations in my head about when are we going to get the team back together? Because right. for these four episodes, we've talked about the fellowship breaking up and how there's things that are sort of just fracturing. But I think that there's a sense of each season is going to bring this whole group together, at least a good majority of them. You know, we've added right. people, we've added Max, we've added Robin, we've added Erica. So how do they fit into this? You know, how are we going to get back? And I think we're starting to get a little bit more of that rejoining, if, if not a restructuring, but at least a collection of community back together with, with this group. Yeah, absolutely. And this is important because they all, in a sense, are starting to pool their knowledge and information to kind of put the puzzles Mm -hmm. together. And one of those things is they realize that they can't just stop Billy because the mindfulness will possess somebody else. So it's not about Billy anymore. It's not about any individual. They need to figure out how to stop the actual mind flayer so that this won't keep happening. (laughs) 
So right. at first they thought Billy was the problem. He was taken over by the mind player, but now they realize it's a much bigger issue. Yeah, there's a there's a Hydra type understanding here yeah. where you can't just cut off one tentacle. You have to right, right. get like right at the heart or the head or whatever the the most vital organ is of this thing, which we don't know at this point what it right. is. We know that it's infected several people and that it's building an army per its right. request from Billy, which I think, I don't know if we talked about that from the first episode, the things that it said to Billy, which is build what's what you see. And we were like, what does that mean? Well, behind him was an army and it was an army that I thought might've been like duplicate Billy's, but I think it was a projection of like, yeah, use the people in Hawkins to build this army. And it creates this, if I'm looking back at the seasons, there's just, again, this expansion of its tactics. So I think that there's a mind, there's something, there's a he that you alluded to in season two that said, okay, I'm going to start with a demagogue. I'm going to start with my little henchman here. Okay, that's not going to work. Now I'm going to try to go underground and get into create tunnels and then create demodogs. Well, that didn't work. Okay. And infect will be in my little spy. Now I'm going to get a little bit further. So it's like, it really is expanding as an entity. He is whatever he is. And I kind of question what is season four going to bring? Are we going to leave Hawkins? Is it going to, how much bigger can you get? And I know we're not through right. this season, but it's got me even questioning about all these entries are, are unique. They also build off of each other. So I think in theory, you could watch season two and not have watched season one, but obviously this through line of this creature having more of a personal touch as each season goes on, it just makes me wonder what season four and season five are going to bring in terms of like, what, uh, how big can you get, can you get? All right. Then we're in the elevator or on top of the elevator at this point, Dustin on the walkie doing his thing. He's got a, a code red. And Steve is being cranky pants, according to Dustin, <laughs> even though he got to spend the night with Robin. I thought that was such a great delivery yeah. of lines. He's still trying to push that relationship on Steve. And he's like, dude, back off. We're in an elevator. I don't need to be thinking about this. And even if I did, she's not my type. Back off, please. Yeah. <laughs> and didn't he mention that they were up all night, like talking all night? I mean, we don't see any of this, by the way. Maybe it was shot. Maybe there were some scenes where they were, you know, just in the elevator at night talking before they fell asleep or something. But, and that could have just been cut for time. But I think it's interesting that, yeah, there's that connection is starting to strengthen there between them, at least off camera. Mm -hmm. So that was good kind of exposition to let us know that it's the next day. And there's this great funny gag with the P, you know, this is what you do. Where do you, where do you go? You go where you can and I love that Robin's just so nonchalant about it, where she sees the pee just going into the elevator. And she's like, Can you redirect your stream, please? Yeah, because he's on top of the elevator, like peeing yeah. on the roof, basically, into a corner, I guess. And it's just kind the of corner like... Of the elevator shaft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Erica's trying to crack open the canister of green goo. Of course she is. Robin dissuades her. She says it's not water because Erica says, hey, if I'm going to be trapped in here, I need liquid. And she's like, you don't need to drink green liquid that looks like a double helix, okay? So just please don't do that. And she makes a comment here again about like how the human body can survive without food, but it needs water. Like she wouldn't know that. Like how would she know that? Who? It's just not age appropriate. 
maybe she's Mr. Clark's long lost daughter or something and he's taught her everything <laughs> he knows. Who knows? Right. Those oars of knowledge. Anyway, um, two Russians are approaching the elevator. They open the door, they take boxes out, and then they leave. Everybody hides because that's what you do. And they were able to, I think they all got on top of the elevator. Yeah. And and then there's this great kind of like Indiana Jones moment where the elevator slow doors slowly going down. And then Steve gets this great idea to use the uh, the canister of like Ninja Turtle goo uh, to, <laughs> to hold the yeah. door open. And they all slide under it right before it crashes and disperses all the green goo everywhere. It, and it was pretty low. Like I have, I have to say, like it looked like the average human would barely fit under there. So it was a well done, well executed scene. Like the tension was there. Like is this thing gonna yep hold up? And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it just it was good. Yeah. And then the scene ends with Dustin looking down that long corridor, saying, "Oh my gosh, uh, those are my words." And then off they go. Yeah. And I think Steve calls Dustin roast beef. Is that what he calls him? Okay. He, he does. to make sure. Yeah, he right. like, he <laughs> refers to him. He's cause he's talking, he's saying, I hope you guys are in good shape. Cause it looks like an infinite, like, like this corridor never ends. And so clearly they have, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and by the way, those two guards that came in were on some kind of vehicle. So clearly it's a big enough corridor. They have to drive a car down it to unload the elevator so they have a long trek ahead of him of them so yeah he makes a joke i think that you know dustin may not be in the best of shape i'm just taking a wild stab in the dark to say that maybe dustin enjoys roast beef sandwiches in the mall food court and that's why (laughs) he calls him this i i didn't see an arby's there but it's possible it just was not shot (laughs) so this is where i think the inclusion of the hot dog on a stick being called corn dog instead would have been perfect because if Steven yeah. said, I'm talking to you, corn dog, that would have been right. appropriate, you know, knowing that we've got that introduction, yeah. but whatever. It was a funny joke. And I really would like to see the blueprints of this structure because you've gone down like so many stories and now you're walking all, it looks like at least two miles of like yeah. corridor. It's There's crazy. no, like, like you can't see an end to it, which means that it's, it's got to be miles and and maybe more beyond that that you can't even see. Yeah. So then we're back in Mike's basement and after a good rain, you know what I like to do? I like to water my lawn. So this is, I mean, a guy <laughs> mowing the lawn in the rain and then after the rain, what do you do? You water your lawn? I mean, I don't know. If this is Mr. Wheeler's idea, he is just... He really cares about his lawn, I think. He has... If that's obsessive. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know if there's a drought in Hawkins and that's why you have to have so much like, like lawn care, but yeah, that's excessive to me. That's just his, uh, that, yeah, his pride and joy. I, I, maybe it's just, he loves his home. He wants it to look beautiful. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) He doesn't do much else that we're aware of. Yeah. I would have expect him to be out there with the, uh, with the water hose doing it by hand since if that was him on the, with the, uh, lawnmower, then I would expect him to do that. But anyway. So Nancy briefs the team about what she experienced at the hospital. Mike makes the connection that the sauna test and Mrs. Driscoll's event (laughs) uh, are connected. And this is where we get the title of the episode, The Flayed, where it's referring to those that have been possessed by the mind flayer and are now doing its bidding. But I can't help every time I see the flayed or hear the flayed to think 
the Bobby Flayed. Like, I think it's some kind of cooking <laughs> possession. Well, maybe in an alternate universe, that would be that. But yeah, they've been Bobby Flayed, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> but, right, but no, right. that's what happened. Yeah, well, and, and it is the mind flayer. So it's like their mind has been cooked, right? So. Right. Well, so there we go. Thank you. Yeah. Now my joke has a little bit of a foundation to it. And it's not just being right. dad jokey at this point. And so everybody has the aha moment that the more that more people might actually be flayed, including Tom, the editor, you know, because they make the connection to Heather, the lifeguard. And that prompts Nancy to say, let's get in a station wagon and go. And so they yeah. do. They all pile into the station wagon. Love the little moment with Mike and Will. They have to go into the wayback seats. And Will's like, welcome to my world, dude. This is where I live, in the back, in the wayback seat. <laughs> right. I never had a station wagon to experience this, but was this like the annex? Like you didn't want to sit back there? I just think there's no real seats back there, right? So it's just kind of like that's storage space, basically. But there's, I don't know. Well, no, there are seats because there's a, they do the, the seatbelts. So they're just, well, yeah, I, I guess they're just not traditional. Cause aren't they sitting sideways? Aren't they, isn't it like a weird, they're sitting side- sideways and backwards. Yeah. So I think there's a little bit of like separation. I mean, you're, and you have much less, I think headroom as, as well. So I think it's just, it's, it's uncomfortable and not ideal place to be sitting. If you get car sick, that's probably the worst place to be. <laughs> that's know? true. Would you say you wouldn't have Max headroom? In oh, car? if BB Max for pork back there. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> dad jokes. They're coming. Coming for you. Gonna get flayed by the. Dad but it's okay because you're All a dad. Right. See, it's it's. I am a dad. Yeah. It's allowed. Appropriate. It's appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Back in the woods, uh, T2 Drago Day finds the broken down truck, looks around, sees the footprints. I think everybody at this point in the season, everybody's a detective. I think we've figured out that nobody's dumb. Everybody's got a, got some kind of inkling, some kind of like hunch. We're going to go after it, even, even this guy. And then uh, we cut to Hopper and Joyce, who are continuing their fun banter. Alexia reminds Hopper of a Russian Scott Clark. <laughs> <laughs> right. Get over it, dude. Get over it. There's nothing there between Joyce yeah. and Mr. Clark. Please just get over it. Yeah, he he seems to think that any guy that Joyce talks to, she's dating. That she can't yeah. you know, have a friend or an acquaintance that's male <laughs> without it being a potential love interest. Gosh. Grow up, Hopper, but don't because yeah. we love it. <laughs> Alexi appears to be running away, but he's actually discovered, yes, a 7 Eleven. <laughs> oh, dude, I miss these. I know they still exist, but they do not exist in my town. And I oh, love going oh. to 7 Eleven. No, no, we have, we have, well, so the place I go to is a come and go, and mm. it's like my, my, my shop, but there's also a Casey's, a Circle K. I don't know if you have any of those. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of, yeah, lots of places that resemble a Seven Eleven at this point. They were like, I feel like the original chain though of gas stations slash convenience store slash mm-hmm. you know, yeah, food mart. You know, a little of everything. And yeah, we had one in our neighborhood, but it it sadly closed uh, over the last year or two. I just a lot of stuff closed in New York during the pandemic. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. uh, it just went away. <laughs> 
it just <laughs> nothing ever moved in in its place but yeah they they're they're all over the place still and but this one looked nice this one i have to say looked shiny and new and <laughs> and stocked with all the best 80s beverages oh, and snacks so good <laughs> Yeah, this was yeah. getting me hungry. I was I was ready to kind of join them in their sort of binge yeah. of of drinks. And look, while I'm cool with drinking what you like when you're thirsty, you know, you got to quench yeah. that thirst. Why not get a bottled water? I mean, you've been walking around, you reach for the new Coke, which has shown its face. I, I haven't really brought this up because I haven't noticed it as much, but this was the first time that new Coke kind of reared its ugly head in the form of a six pack that that Hopper buys. But, you know, before that, all three of them are chugging some kind of soda. And I guess it's because either they just craving soda or they just don't have bottled water in those, in those uh, freezers or refrigerators. I'm not sure. I I saw that Hopper chugs a Jolt Cola. That's what he was drinking. Yeah. I didn't know Jolt was in existence back then. Yeah. And then I think Alexi was just drinking a regular Coke and yeah, I mean, you know what I'm thinking? They all just needed a little caffeine fix. They were, they were up all night walking through the woods and they just, you know, True. didn't have their coffee. So they're like, let's go for some caffeine. And then maybe they got some water after that. Although, although we didn't see them buy any water. They essentially bought a map, a highway map of Illinois and a carton of camels, you know, the essentials. Yeah. The <laughs> essentials. The <laughs> And the Slim Jims. Let's not forget about the, the Slim, Slim Jims. I think there were some onion rings in there too. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. Not so Slim Jim needed his Slim Jims for <laughs> right. sustenance, and so he, exactly. he he looks outside of the convenience store. Apparently, they need a vehicle, yes, because his truck is just not even in working order anymore. Yeah, they're not walking all the way to Illinois, so no, he has established that's not happening. <laughs> right. So Jim chomps on the Slim Jim. He sees this car and decides to commandeer it. So he goes out and he feeds this story to this guy who's filling up his gas tank, telling him that he's got this Russian dude who apparently kills children. And <laughs> I think what's, I don't know what's funnier, is his story or the fact that Joyce just sort of jumps right in to that facade. Like he says, Ah, Detective Byers, uh, this is Todd. He's agreed to lend us his vehicle to transport our dangerous criminal. Oh, yes. He's a very dangerous uh, forger. Yeah. Uh, Child murderer. Child murderer. We should really get going. Her body language was so funny. She's like, oh, we're we're role playing. I can do this. That's fine. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And the guy, by the way, was such a cliche 80s, like preppy guy, like with his popped collar his linen Miami pants. Vice his, is what I was thinking. He feels yeah, a little bit like, like definitely, a Miami Vice knockoff. Yeah. But he was not a like he was not a cool looking guy. Like he was a no. guy that was trying so hard to look cool, but he was not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he he deserved it. <laughs> he did. I do want to give him props for his uh, license plate. It was personalized, and oh, yeah. his name is Todd. We find out not. Right. Because of his license plate, although that could give it away, but because Hopper asks. And it, his license plate is T-O-D-F-T-H-R, which I think we would interpret as Toddfather. <laughs> yes. That's, oh, and man. that's what um, Todd McFarlane goes by, who's the creator of Spawn. He, he often refers to really? himself I didn't as the know Toddfather. That. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's really cool. I don't think there's any connection here to that whatsoever. I'm just, I, I, I'm just putting that together. 
myself. Okay. It reminded me of that. Well, that's good trivia to know for me. I didn't know that about him. So then we're back in the Russian tunnels. Uh, We've established it's a long tunnel and apparently a fire hazard, according to Steve. I love that we get a little bit of like, whether it's intentional or not, he's trying to be the mature (laughs) adult in this relationship. (laughs) I mean, he's the oldest, so... And he's yeah. leading a bunch of children around a Russian yeah. <laughs> yeah. bunker. So he's got to keep them alive. It reminded me of the conversation he had in Stranger Things 2 where he's telling the kids, no, we're the backups. We're not the starters. We got to stay here. He's like trying right. to be the responsible adult. And they're not listening to him then. They're not listening to him now. So Steve, just give it, it up. It definitely reminds me a little bit of um, Bran, the... Uh, Josh Brolin character from Goonies kind of, yeah. he, he's the, the, no, the <laughs> oldest of the crew, but who's trying to, you know, keep them safe, but he's not that much more experienced in life than they are really. You pop my tires. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, I want my bike. <laughs> I love that movie. It's so much fun. He steals the little girl's bike. I think it's, yeah, yeah. it's short round sister's bike. It is. Training wheels. it is. Yeah. <laughs> and she's marching off like she's <laughs> right. so mad. She can't do anything. Yeah. Anyway, Erica makes a comment, and this is where I told you offline there is a small, I think, allusion to Chernobyl, where she yes. describes <laughs> after Steve is talking about the tunnels being a fire hazard and how this is insane, this is not safe. Erica says, they're commies. They don't pay people. They cut corners. And I'm like, yep, they do. <laughs> They do, but how would you know that, Erica? How would you know that? Yeah, that's a whole separate issue. But but yes, <laughs> being the vessel of facts is one thing. Uh, the fact <laughs> that you're right, I'm cheering for. But the fact that it's coming from your mouth, I'm not really quite behind at this point. But yes, you're absolutely right. They do cut corners. <laughs> they do, <laughs> and, we and that's know what as, happens as when we do. covered. Yeah, in Chernobyl, that's exactly why and how it happened because they went for the cheaper easier approach and yeah. uh yeah so steve plays the part of helping patch out when he can't get what's going on by saying do you think they built this whole mall just so they could transport the green poison and so at that point i was like okay confirmation this is a front the mall is a front it's now a russian operation underneath but we don't get everything which is fine good let me figure out yeah. some more stuff and so you know sometimes you need a little help along the way a little help from your friends, yep. as they say on the Wonder <laughs> yeah. Years. Oh, baby, but uh, Dustin dropping the Prometheum comparison, and then Robin with the explanation. And there was a moment, Adam, when I thought, oh, did they have a moment? Are they going to get together? Yeah. And then I thought... Dustin is too young for her, and he's got a girlfriend, apparently. So, no, yeah. that was a moment that was, like, fleeting. They're bonded by nerddom, but that's it. They're just butts at this point. It's good. They're just, yeah, they're just nerdy friends and connect. But, again, it just shows how this whole group, at least the trio of them, if you take Erica out, wouldn't really be the worst thing. But the three of them yeah. really have a great dynamic. Yeah. So Robin makes a really valid point about why the Russians chose Hawkins. Why pick a town like this? There's nothing here. And that actually kind of prompts Dustin and Steve to stop and infer that they know about the, you know. And this is where I think the two stories sort of collide or connect. So you asked me a couple of episodes ago, do you see the connection yet? 
can you make that connection? Or I don't remember how you asked it, but they were, I think I remember describing it as a parallel path and how do we make mm-hmm. that connection? And I think that this is it. Like the, again, another aha moment that I needed assistance with that. Yep. The Russians are trying to open this gate, which we've seen this gates, I guess the epicenter or the kind of the, the highest level of activity is in Hawkins for some reason. So there's still some mystery yeah, to be right. had, but the first episode and this episode are starting to sort of connect. What I've realized though, is I wanted to initially say, Oh, that first episode, this must've been under the mall. No, it wasn't. It was actually in Russia. And then a year later between that time, they moved their facility to Hawkins and put up Starcourt mall as the front. And so now they're just continuing because Russia is not the hotbed, but Hawkins, Indiana is right. It's like in Ghostbusters when they talk about how the tower that Dana lives in is like the center for the, you know, all of the the ghost activity, right? It's like that seems yeah. to be like a magnet for it all. For some reason, Hawk is the central or point or focal point for this upside down activity. And maybe it's where the the veil is the thinnest between the two dimensions, you know, and, and it's the easiest right. to get through. Again, we haven't been told anything more. We don't know, but... There's uh, the Russians clearly figured something out fi- or understood that this was the case and relocated to to have a better shot at breaking on through to the other side. <laughs> doors. I was waiting for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> the end of the scene leaves us with uh, hearing the code over the walkie. And this is where they realize that, hey, if they're hearing the signal, it means that it can get to the surface. I don't know if that right. means that they have gone up. I don't think so. Or if it means that they can now talk to people above ground, like there's a, a weak spot. Or I think it's the latter because obviously they've gone down to what Steve calls the pit of hell or something like that. <laughs> they've gone so deep. Right. <laughs> and so at this point, I think that they have some kind of connection where they can call out to to get some help. Right. Or at the very least, they can radio for help or maybe there's another entry point right maybe there's more than one Mm -hmm. elevator or way out of this facility the other one's an escalator like because it's the mall and so it's an escalator (laughs) that takes like the longest 45 minutes to get up there (laughs) (laughs) it would have to start like six miles away just to make up you know with the incline Uh, (laughs) a slow like just a gradual grade (laughs) what what they, and you know what so they're annoying. missing in those long corridors is just like a people mover, like in an airport, you know, just a little moving, oh, yes. you know, uh, just stand with your luggage. It just kind of, kind of moves you down the hall. Just kind of sit your, <laughs> sit your elbow on the, on the rail and just be yeah. like, all right, we're cool. You can watch somebody else going the other direction. <laughs> Some other Russian dude. <laughs> and they're like, what are these guys doing? Here? It doesn't matter. Whatever. We're good. Where are you guys going? Oh, we have to, you know, we're getting the next shipment. i can imagine dustin being the one who like if they're on one of those to go the opposite way and then just have fun trying to run in place like a treadmill (laughs) right (laughs) so then we're back at heather's house the gang's all here and uh, it's like the scooby-doo gang right here they're looking for clues (laughs) it's it's cold in the house ding chemicals are found in the kitchen uh, they think maybe they're making something. And I, I started thinking, and I say this very, very candidly, this is something I picked up from an episode of another one of the other podcasts I listened to for the show that I'm wondering about the chemicals. Like, okay, are they trying to make something? 
And mm. I start trying to connect it to the fertilizer. Like, why are you eating fertilizer? Well, there's right. chemicals in the fertilizer. Right. So maybe there's a connection to that. They also find blood on the carpet, rope on the garage floor. I just have to suspend my disbelief because these are kids that have only experienced like high school and a little bit of like outside activity in terms of like real adventure. Yes, it's supernatural adventure, but they are like picking <laughs> right. up on a lot of like really, really great stuff here. I'm glad they are. I mean, again, Scooby-Doo is in full effect. I'm waiting for somebody to go, rawr, rawr, you know, like <laughs> at some <laughs> yeah. moment. But, but yeah, they're giving us a lot of great information of like, okay, we're piecing together what actually happened here. And I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. And they do so in an interesting way and with these kind of flashback cutaways and a few of which are actual shots that we saw at the end of, I think the third episode or maybe it was the fourth. And, and then of course, there's a few shots that we haven't seen, which is interesting. Like, so we don't know for sure if this is what happened, but this is what they're imagining may have happened yeah. when they tied them up and put them in the trunk of the car. I mean, that's, it's very possible it didn't happen that way, but they're what the important thing is that they are realizing that they weren't killed or flayed there on the spot that they were taken right. somewhere else. That's what they're sort of, picking up from these clues they were taken somewhere else where they were taken over or converted or whatever, whatever you flayed. want to call it they were flayed, flayed. they were bobby flayed yeah. <laughs> will suggest using mrs driscoll because i think nancy pointed out that as she was leaving or being taken away she said i have to get back i have to get back and i mean that right. to me is if you're going to get to that point of saying hey they weren't transformed here that they were transformed somewhere else that seems like a good logical next step is let's yeah. get some bait in the form of Mrs. Driscoll to take us to right. wherever she needs to go. So that's that's good inference. Right. I like that. Let, yeah, let her free from the hospital and she'll run wherever that back is. She'll just follow her. And that's all you got to do. Yeah. Just put her on a leash. Might not work kind. out. Yeah, it might not work. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Feed her some she pesticides. She might at some fertilizer. point. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa! I was <laughs> I was still waiting for that. When <laughs> yeah, I know you were like, you were really worried I, last time that she was gonna have I, an accident. <laughs> I don't need Mrs. Driscoll exploding on screen, please. That would just give me nightmares. The nurse comes in with the, one of those little bedpans, and she's and like, I'm gonna need a bigger. <laughs> <That's> so gross. <laughs> I'm gonna need a bigger bedpan. <laughs> we lost another one, Earl. <laughs> I got another explosion in room three. <laughs> <laughs> Clean up crew. That's so terrible. <laughs> the order's like, they don't pay me enough to clean this crap up. <laughs> yeah. Get Morty and the janitors. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the orderlies like in the break room and they're like taking bets on when these people are going to explode. Like, I'm going to give Driscoll right. until 1130. PM tonight. What do you think? What's the over under on that? <laughs> it's uh, yeah. So I've put some bad so, images in our listeners' minds, and I'm I apologize. And you don't apologize <laughs> as you're laughing. You Not say, really. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, getting back to the story. <laughs> yeah. We're back at 7-Eleven, and I realize that even Russian soldiers have to get their hostess fix. I see that he had snowballs and cupcakes ready to purchase. And I think this is cool. Like, 
I would assume he was going to pay for it. I knew he was using the purchase to get information from the guy, but I'd like to believe there's a little benevolence in him that he's like, if I'm going to kill people, I'm at least going to do it with a good conscience and pay for this food and not steal it. So I would think that, you know, he did have a little bit of a, a good, good heart there. Um, or at least that he's trying to blend in as a, you know, <laughs> uh, as part of our culture. So he can't, he can't just be running around like an actual Terminator and shooting everybody and hoping, especially the police are right outside because they're yeah. dealing with, yeah. with the uh, Todd father and his stolen vehicle. The, t- the Todd father incident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have expected him to say, I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need your snowballs, your cupcakes, and your new Coke. <laughs> Even better. That'd be perfect. I would love yeah. that. And the, and the pack of Slim Jims. <laughs> and then take me to the chopper. Take to the chopper. <laughs> so he uses his special influence, i.e. slamming the clerk's head on his snowballs to get information. Which at least cushioned the blow a little bit. Yeah, but you kind of ruined your snack cakes there, man. I mean, come on. If you're going to do that, at least put a bad snack in front of you. The snowballs, I could imagine. The cupcakes, I feel bad because I like cupcakes. But, you know, the snowballs have more cushion. They're not as tasty. So I think that would have been a better out for him. He hasn't, if if he didn't pay for them yet, he could always swap it out for a new pack, you know? True. (laughs) You ruined these for me when I tried to get information from you. So I'm getting new <laughs> snowballs and cupcake. <laughs> the next scene takes us to a place that I was very surprised. And I just now kind of had an aha moment. So this is Murray's yeah. house. I'm so excited that we're back here. It was one of the highlights of the last season. I actually just now realized that he does not live in Hawkins, that when Nancy and Jonathan no. went to go visit him, I clearly remember them leaving and me saying, where are they going? Well, they went to Illinois. Right. So he lives in Illinois. Right. I did not make that connection. Because he used to be, at, if you recall, he used to be an investigative journalist in Chicago. So he, he probably lives in some suburban area of Chicago. Maybe he lives in Aurora, Illinois, near Wayne Campbell, <laughs> Garth Algar. But, <laughs> uh, but yes, that's where they went. And the first time we meet Murray is in Hawkins because he's at the police station, if you recall, right, in that very right. early episode of season two. But yes, he his, I don't know what you would call it, his kind of uh, man cave, his conspiracy pad. Conspiracy pad, I like that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like, you know, it's one of those curved kind of um, buildings. So it's some kind of... Um, like a fallout shelter or something? Yeah, kind of like a, that's kind of what it looks like from the exterior, but, you know, who knows what it actually was before he acquired it. He's still as snarky and paranoid as ever. (laughs) Nothing has changed with (laughs) him. Again, I love the the recurring joke with the inability to look at the camera. He's like, look at the camera, and they can't find it. They're looking all around, and he has to explain to them where it is. And they both, if I recall, they both look at the doorbell just like Nancy, just like and Jonathan, Jonathan and did, Nancy which did. I think, yeah, yeah. Like that's where I mean, in modern day, yes, you might have one of those like ring cameras, you know, on the yeah. doorbell. Yeah. But this is 1985. Look up. There's a camera clearly pointing down <laughs> at you. <laughs> it's a good. It's a good gag. It's it was a nice little uh, throwback to the previous season. 
Yeah, and in their defense, and with Jonathan and Nancy, I mean, you don't always go up to houses with cameras on them. So where would you expect no, it to be? No. And, you know, the the first thing you do is ring a doorbell, so you would maybe expect it to be around there. But that's neither here nor there. It makes a funny joke. Yeah, sure. He comes out with yeah. a shotgun. He doesn't feel safe, apparently, because of the Russian. I think that's what he saw. He sees the three people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is where we find out that he speaks Russian. So Hopper has come through. And this is why he wanted to go to yep. Illinois, because he knew someone not in Hawkins that speaks Russian. That's right. And here he is. I love that. He breaks out some device. It looks like a metal detector of some kind. And I, I don't yeah. know if he's using that for an actual purpose or if he's using it for intimidation. With uh... No, I think it's like a homemade device of his own invention that like searches for you know, bugs, like tr- listening or tracking devices. He's you know, he's paranoid, so he's trying to make sure there's nothing on him that would allow someone to find him and or spy yeah. on him. Yeah. I think what stood out to me in this scene was just how assertive Joyce gets with him. Like, she is not yeah. having any of his nonsense. And the way that she sort of gets in his face about everything. She's like, put that thing away. Stop behaving like a jackass and ask him what he's doing that's making my magnets fall off my damn bridge. And he has nothing to say to her. Like, he has no response. The way this ends, you've got Hopper. He kind of escorts her with his, you know, he puts his hand on her back. And he looks at Murray like, yeah, I don't know. The facial expression didn't say anything, but he's like, yeah, "Yeah, I I can't control her. I mean, maybe you can. (laughs) It was so funny. Like, I'm not in charge of this. I just brought the crazy people. Right. It's like, I think it's more of like, you better listen to her because, you know, she's not she's not messing around, you know, (laughs) just like, don't look to me like I'm not going to I'm not going to help you out. She's like, Murray, cut the crap. We're done with this. We need real answers. Don't give us this conspiracy theory nonsense. (laughs) In in, in all fairness, she's been dealing with this longer than anybody. She's the one that first saw her magnets falling to the ground. She's the one that went to Scott Clark's garage and learned about magnetism and all of this. So she's, in her mind, this has been an ongoing investigation much longer than anybody else. Yeah, she feels like she's owed something, and and in some ways she right. is. She's like, I I put the time in, okay? I played a yeah. I played a detective <laughs> at one point. <laughs> Makeshift detectives all over Hawkins at this point. That's right. So then we're back in the Russian tunnels. The kids discover a lot of different activities going on, and this is a callback to that line you said earlier. Erica thinks she yeah. has found the comms room, and I've watched this twice. I don't know what she sees. So first of all, it's a bad line. And secondly, yeah. there's no cinematography. There's no shot that indicates that she saw something. So I I think that this was just sort of a flub in terms of the filmmaking at this point or the shot selection, yeah. because we're not given any indication at this point because of you know how you and I are sort of responding to her character. I feel like it's just a stupid line. Like, what? what? That comes? Yeah. Did you read a label? There is some dialogue after that where she says something like, yeah, I saw a room with a lot of lights and buttons in it or something. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's, I guess that's the, our best option. you know. But again, how would she equate that to comms? And how would she know what comms are? Like, she's not in the military. <laughs> she, I, anyway, yeah. it's, the only good thing about this moment was Dustin, when he sees all the Russian activity and the Russian soldiers and with guns and uniforms, he goes, it's it's Red Dawn in here. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. You know, he, Red Dawn <laughs> yeah. is a movie that came out a 
a year prior, 1984. So mm-hmm. he absolutely yep. would have seen it in the theater. And uh, fun fact, Red Dawn was the first ever film to receive the PG-13 rating. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a fun fact. Yep. After I think um, Temple of Doom was so intense and so gross for a PG movie that along with Steven Spielberg and they forced the MPAA to establish a new rating system that was somewhere between PG and R. And this was the first movie to be considered and it was not PG, but it wasn't R. So they gave it PG 13. So there you go. Oh, wow. Red Dawn. Good job. Red Dawn for being yeah. a trendsetter. Well, I guess Temple of it's Doom was a trendsetter, the but books. after the fact. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Officially. Yeah. I think Poltergeist was the other movie that was, part of the push to make PG-13 happen. So it really was all Spielberg's fault. If anyone doesn't like it really the PG-13 was, yeah. rating, he, he <laughs> single-handedly caused it. Good job, Steven. Anyway. <laughs> way, to, way to change the world yeah. <laughs> of movies. Good thing his career went downhill after that. Dude, it just did nothing after that. <laughs> anyway, I, I think in light of that Red Dawn reference, the only thing that I could think of that might sort of connect Erica to this is that she saw mm-hmm. Red Dawn. And so she's kind of making those <laughs> cultural connections. And, and I say that Maybe. sort of tongue in cheek, but so, sort of seriously that that's what we do as kids. We sort of see what's on screen and then we sort of be like, Oh yeah, that kind of looks like the comms from this movie or yeah, it feels like star Wars. And we sort of make believe and interpret it that way. I just don't feel like, the next shot is them going into that room. And what is it? It's the comms room. So it's a little too on the nose for me. I don't know how you would solve the problem. And I like what we got after we got in there, but the way we got there was a little stupid. Right. I agree. I just think in general, the three of them would have been fine. Like we didn't, I'm not trying to make this all about hate on Erica because I think she's a fine character and, I think that it's great to have another younger character in there. I just think the execution on her behavior, her attitude, her knowledge is just a little, you know, they could have given some of that dialogue to Dustin. You know, Dustin would have been somebody that would, if he knows Red Dawn, he, if he said, I think I saw the comms room, like that sounds like something Dustin would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Make the vents bigger and then Dustin can fit. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Just, yeah. So we get to the comms room. And there is a Russian employee there. Robin tries to distract him with, I thought, again, clever, clever girl, right? Robin's like yeah. <laughs> using the Russian code. She's like, And she speaks quite well. She does. She sounds very authentic, but this guy's not having it because he's like, these are children that are not supposed to be right. here. Russian they're or They're wearing, wearing fake sailor uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a giveaway he's, at all, is it? He's like, that's not the new Russian Navy uniform, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Comrade, you look good in your Navy outfits. Are those state of the art? <laughs> what ship do you serve on? The USS Butterscotch. <laughs> ah, that's a good one. Oh, I know that ship. It's very sweet. <laughs> yes. Delicious ship. <laughs> Delicious ship. <laughs> Terrible in the water because it sinks due to ice cream base. <laughs> All right. Anyway, end scene. We've gone off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Steve takes matters into his own hands. 
he successfully beats the guy, to which Dustin says, Dude! You did it! You won a fight! <laughs> so good. So fantastic. So fantastic. And did you notice, he in classic uh, Steve um, personality, he, he fixes his hair first that after yep. he knocks him out. But before he knocks him out, you know how we always talk about how he does this little bat twirl? You notice that he like yeah. flips the little thing. He like he takes the time to like throw up the, whatever it was, a little um, receiver or whatever. He like he flips it in his hand, <laughs> then he whacks him over the head with it. It's like you're in the fight of your life, and you have the time. And he takes the time to look cool doing it. I just thought that's uh, that's very Steve. It's a wrestling finishing move. So this is what I think Steve is. You could call him a superhero. <laughs> I call him a wrestler because he's a yeah. He's a WWE superstar in that he has a signature move which is the flip mm-hmm. of whatever he is he's holding. And then when he, he finishes the fight, whether it's with a Demogorgon or whatever, <laughs> the hair flick, I believe, because we joked that having his hair covered up is his kryptonite, because he right. can flick his hair, because he can like adjust it, that's his strength. It's almost like he's got this Samson thing going on. It's not the length of hair, it's the style of the hair, where right, right. if he had the hat on, he wouldn't have been able to beat the crap out of this guy. But because the hat was off, he's good. And he, he can do his little signature finishing move. Absolutely, yeah. And he just, yeah, he's got to look good afterwards because, you know, if his hair is messed up, his chances with Robin are over. <laughs> well, he says they're <laughs> over by his choice already. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So the, the scene's finishing up with Robin going to this blue light and she invites everyone up. And what they see is this machine, like in the first episode, trying to punch a hole in the universe, (laughs) but not like Steve Jobs intended. And (laughs) we also see that the machine is powered by that green stuff. So we don't know what the green stuff is. At least I don't know at this point. But we know it's fuel for this machine. And we know that the blue light is essentially the light that's emitting, trying to open this gate. And of course, Dustin and Steve are in on the know-how, like what's happening here. Robin and Erica, I believe, are sort of in the dark, even though they're in the light at this point. And then we have sort of that scene sort of ending that we go, okay, so we're now officially knowledgeable, just like Steve and Dustin, everybody else is, or vice versa. Yeah. And it's, and I don't know if you caught it, but there's this great shot where it reveals what they're seeing, where it kind of pulls back and you see them kind of all four of them looking through the window. And as it pulls back to reveal what's happening, the camera, goes through the glass or passes through the glass the glass in the observation room that that they're in and as it does so it kind of ripples as though the camera was actually moving through the glass it's obviously a digital effect i didn't notice that but it's a it's a little it's a subtle thing that it makes you realize oh yeah the camera didn't physically move back through empty glass panes no it like went through the glass into the main room where this machine is obviously generating an enormous amount of electricity more as mr clark said more than we can produce at least that we know how to produce yeah this green goo somehow that clearly is acidic because it burns a hole right in the ground when it gets crushed by the door earlier in the episode so i'm not sure what that is the turtle ooze it's turtle ooze yeah the the secret of the ooze yeah that's the real secret of the ooze right there that's what we need to find out we need to know what what is the secret of the ooze I, I hope it involves vanilla ice, <laughs> but maybe it won't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's right. 
the last few scenes take place at the hospital. And I have to say, I love yeah. the way the episode ends because it's just, I mean, it really is like part of the cold open where there's this like slow ramp up and then like, boom, finishing off with the jump scare for us. I think it's great. So the gang, as I'm calling them at this point, tries to sneak past the hospital attendant. This is the lady from the previous episode that I said, you know, <laughs> right. she's not even paying right. attention, but she's laying down the law. She's like two at a time. I don't care who you're related to two at a time. Yeah. But, at least she doesn't. She's letting two people go. She doesn't care what two of them go. But it's just that's where she draws the line. It's not who goes in. It's how many go in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't care if you're related or not, even if you say you are. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Any two strangers, fine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nancy and Jonathan end up going, and they basically make up in the elevator. I don't know how I feel about this. I, I wasn't really rooting for them to have tension beyond this necessarily but i feel like this mm -hmm. and the scene with mike and l seems a little too quick of a resolution i'm more okay with mike and 11 because they're sort of juvenile and you know you're gonna break up four or five times before you finally say i've gotta live my life but jonathan and nancy had a real serious conversation that exposed a lot from each other i mean they were very blunt and very raw with each other i'm glad that they're back together but I kind of wish that the tension lasted maybe another episode because it felt a little too quick. Like it was three days at most or two days at most between yeah. the fight. Yeah. I just, I think that it's one of those situations where they're dealing with such a bigger problem now than their relationship issues that it almost like forced them back together because they need each other to get through this clearly uh, yet another paranormal <laughs> event that's happening to their families and their lives. And so I just think because of the extreme nature of the situation that they've found themselves in, they're just sort of realizing that that was really silly, what we were fighting about. That was nothing, you know, yeah. and maybe, okay. you know, once if they resolve whatever this is with Billy and the mind player, maybe the, those old wounds will open up yet again and they'll have more conversations about their future together. But right now, at least life and death they got to stick together. Yeah, I think it's a lot like with Will and Lucas when Lucas is trying to apologize and Will's like, we've got bigger fish to fry or at this right, case, like bigger mind flayers exactly, to like, play. I think we, yeah. exactly, yep. And by the way, Billy and the Mind Flayer sounds like a really great 80s rock band. When you said that, I was like, that sounds <laughs> <Yeah>. like. <laughs> or Billy and the Mind Flayers. Yeah. Billy and the Mind yeah, Flayers. Billy and the Mind Flayers. Or, yeah. or Billy and the Flayed. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll workshop that a bit. <laughs> It's an emo punk band is what that is. Yeah. It's going to be ours. We're going to start yeah. our own man. I'm playing the triangle. <laughs> Just do the tune of, of Benny and the Jets. Billy and the Blade. Right. <laughs> sir Elton, you have a new single, sir. <laughs> yeah. You know that sound you've been looking for? <laughs> well, listen to this. <laughs> Let's get our obligatory Back to the Future reference in every episode if yeah. we can. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. There's a pro I have a problem. <laughs> the honest truth of it is that that first Back to the Future movie, I have seen probably more times than any other movie growing up. And so I know every line by heart. So I just, in my own life, I work it in conversations because it's so second nature to me that it just mm -hmm. comes out. And it was such an influential film for me just growing up. And so I, I constantly quote it yeah. wherever I can. You get no apologies from me, or you don't have to apologize <laughs> to anybody, especially me, because I'm, I'm a, sorry. a fan, too. 
but not sorry. <laughs> Next, we're with Mike and Lucas. They're trying to get a Kit Kat out of the machine. It gets stuck, but <laughs> Elle uses her powers to jostle the machine loose. And did you notice that everything but the Kit Kat bar <laughs> got moved except that? So really, she didn't do anything yeah. good. She was like, here, here's everything yeah. but the Kit Kat bar. I mean, they made out pretty good. They've got enough snacks for a while, and that's important for Dustin, but he's not there, sadly. So they're, uh, yeah, yeah. They're stocked, but they didn't get their kick out. You're right. No. Mike's like, give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) Break me off a piece of that. What was that from, uh, where break me off a piece of that fancy feast? (laughs) Is that the office? (laughs) The office. (laughs) When he's trying to remember the. Can I just say this? I'm going to go back. We'll come yeah. back to this. But I had an office <laughs> moment in this episode where, where Murray is doing the machine on the Russian. Yeah. And all I could yeah. think about was the early season two episode where <laughs> Jim gets Dwight a gator detector and it's like a metal detector. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help but think that like is is Murray doing like a like gator it's a real thing. Yeah. 80s? Yeah. yeah, like it's a real thing. And I thought from a conspiracy theorist point of view, Murray would definitely like fall into that trap. <laughs> thinking right. That there's like a Murray's like, this is my Russian, my Our secret detector. KGB agent detector. You know, just like <laughs> running it over people like, you're KGB. Yes. It's, it's, it's going off. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. I, uh, yeah. No. I yeah. just, I had that thought. <laughs> Woo. Okay. Let's finish this strong. All right. After that, Lucas tells Mike that that was an olive branch from L and tells him yeah. that he's going to distract Max so Mike can talk to L and this is uh, this is where they they end up making up not making out which is good cuz you know leave that <laughs> in your room lady uh but <clears throat> meanwhile Nancy lady. and Jonathan <laughs> Well, she is she's just a young lady uh, <laughs> little lady <laughs> Okay. Nancy and Jonathan, they go to Mrs. Driscoll's room and she's not there, but her room is a mess and the lights start flickering and this is where the chaos starts. Tom shows up. Did she explode? I mean, we never answered this. Where did she go? No, I don't think she exploded. I think there would be residue. There would be Driscoll residue somewhere. It was just a lot of residue. Yeah. If she did explode, it was somewhere else. She's just missing pieces <laughs> maybe she is maybe <laughs> maybe the vast majority of her made it back to the steel wood mill <laughs> not all like of her hand, right <laughs> yeah. yeah there's a few pieces but most of her torso <laughs> in yeah, fact like... of the steel mill <laughs> jonathan pummels tom with a flower vase and they run but then they see bruce who says owie connection here so now we get the reveal right. that there is like a borg connection you mentioned this on the last episode that there might be like a hive right. mind like if one feels right. pain they all feel pain this is sort of confirmed at this point i think that's kind of cool this is a different thing because we've seen that will feels pain and the mind flare feels pain but now we've got this symbiosis of multiple people which makes me think we didn't see heather or billy at this moment but i'm assuming that they felt that same kind of pain even though they were right. on screen. Exactly, yeah. Unless there's some kind of proximity issue with, you know, like if you, they have to be certain distance from one another. But I, my guess is you're correct, that every everybody that's been flayed is connected 
on the same level and therefore can be hurt and mm-hmm. and or killed. But is, does that mean if you kill one, do they all die or do they just feel the pain? Well, I think that was confirmed at the end of the episode where they do kill Tom and Bruce. At least I think they do. And right. they just sort of melt into that goo and kind of coagulately right. join together. So I don't know that you kill. I think you disable. I think that would be the best way to describe this is if right. the mind right. flare, whatever the the mothership is or the mother goo yeah. or whatever we're calling it. These are extensions of that. And so when you destroy or when you disable, it simply just sort of morphs into something else and sort of inhabits it maybe takes another the, body. Yeah, or the organic like material kind of and kind of calls it back. Yeah. Morphs it together. Yeah. There were some really great like fight sequences. I love the the one on one between Jonathan and the editor and with yeah. um Nancy and Bruce, I thought Bruce. it was great to yeah. see Bruce get his comeuppance. I mentioned, I think, in the first episode that I hope that that would happen. Not that I don't like Jake Busey, but he's such a skis in this that yeah, yeah. seeing him get really violently killed, like with the with the scissors, <laughs> I thought was like, oh my gosh! I mean, come on, that's Nancy. And when he hold back a little bit, you know, when don't. he like reaches through one of the windows to kind of open the door, you know, uh, I noticed that he has. He had a wedding band on his hand. I just kept thinking, who would marry this guy? I mean, he's, I mean, not possessed at Jake Busey, but normal reporter Jake Busey at the Hawkins Post was an absolute yeah. jerk. So, like, what woman has yeah. to deal with him? Well, that she doesn't have to anymore. But yeah, right. <laughs> it's Mrs. Driscoll. She was secretly married to to Bruce. <laughs> so when all this is going on, we have uh, Mike offering his olive branch in the form of M&Ms. That's a good olive branch. Something interesting here I wanted to bring up. Um, he says, I like the new look, by the way. It's cool. Yeah. One of the things that was pointed out to me was that you have this agency of Eleven in relationship to her relationship with Max. So there was a conversation in one of these episodes that I was listening to where they were talking about how if you look at the costumes for Eleven, They've all been dictated by somebody else. So Brenner in season one, Hopper in season two, and to an extent, Hopper in part of this season. And it wasn't until she got to go to the mall and Max specifically said, pick something out that's you. Like she never says, that looks terrible on you. You should do this. You should do that. And so I think this line, I like the new look, by the way, is in some ways for us and for Mike saying, this is who you are. You're 11. You're not my girlfriend, defined by that. You're not Hopper's daughter. You're not Brenner's daughter. You're not all this stuff that you've been identified by in the last two and a half seasons. You are you. And I think that's a really important step forward for her character. Because even in season two, when she goes off on her adventure in Chicago, the outfit that she comes back with is not hers. It was made by Callie. Collie. Killie. Cool. She kind of adopted Whatever. all of the, the, uh, that 80s gang look that they had. So she she was essentially conforming to them, not being herself. So, yes, I think you're absolutely right. This is her the first time where she's actually, thanks to Max, been able to pick out her own outfit and wear her hair the way she wants to wear it. Kind of, she's finding her own style, uh, although one could argue that she's just at the whim of the fashion czars at the gap but you know she's <laughs> possible <laughs> yeah 
there's only so many choices, and she has to pick one of the the looks. Well, go work at Scoops Ahoy, and you can get yourself an outfit there. That'd be good too. <laughs> but then she would be required to wear. See, that's where she would be told true, have to wear this true. uniform. So, yeah. Anyway, that's no, I think you're right though. That's she regression. at least found something that she liked. Whether it's a good outfit or not is up to everyone's personal taste. But it's uh, it's yep. her, and that's and that's great. I agree. So after the beatdown of Nancy and Jonathan, of these two guys, as we said before, they sort of dissolve. This blob converges into one. We talked about this on, I think, episode two, the use of sound Mm -hmm. design. The lights go out. The next thing we see, the lights come back on. And then there's the loud scream that we've sort of gotten familiar with from, I believe it's the same sound that we hear when it spits Billy out. But we get a full on like view of the mind flayer or the mind flayers henchman or something. Right. Something similar to. Yeah. Because it's, it's a little smaller. Yeah. Yeah. It's a baby. It's a little bitty kid. Yeah. Like a mind flayer child. So it just has material from from two full grown men, not you know thousands of rats. So would this be like a mind flayer, like my two dads, that kind of thing? Anyway, it's scary, yep. and it leaves yeah. us going, "What's going to happen?" The hospital is in no way safe at this point. So let's get out of here, mm-hmm. and that's where we're left. Yep, that's uh, quite and, the the cliffhanger. So we basically we're left with three three kind of parallel threads we have the crew at the hospital with this creature that just formed we have the situation at murray's with the russian and joyce and hopper where they need to figure out like what does this guy know why are they here hopefully this russian will will reveal something that will help them and then we have the kids in the russian lab facility who are I, I can only imagine going to get caught very quickly because that same shot I just re- I mentioned a few minutes ago where the camera pans out. There's like a million. Their their faces are all like looking through the window, and there's like Russian guards and scientists standing yeah. right next to them. Yeah. Like, if they just turn around, they're going to see these kids there. There's not a lot of places to hide, so so they yeah. seem to be in imminent danger. But uh, do. we'll find out. <laughs> imminent danger for almost everybody, except right. for. Joyce and Hopper. Right. They, unless Alexi is, you know, secretly something that he doesn't appear to be, he seems to be like a relatively harmless scientist. So he may be, he may be happy to be taken away because he knows if his, he doesn't succeed, that big Russian guy is going to choke him out. Like his old science, science boss did. (laughs) got right. He's like, I only have two days left to do this. (laughs) Take me away. Anywhere. Take me away. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that'll do it for this edition of an original series. Adam, what's coming up next? All right. Next up is chapter six, and it's entitled E Pluribus Unum, which is, of course, Latin for out of many, one, and uh, which is on all of the U.S. or most U.S. currency and coins. And I guess that kind of makes sense here. We're talking about a hive mind and uh, a creature that... Uh, is controlling many, so, but there's one being or creature that's potentially in, you know, in control of 
the many. I, yeah, it's an interesting title. Yeah. I don't know if that's it or if there's a hidden meaning to that title, but we'll find out. I think you could also refer to all of these groups that you mentioned converging together. True. That's another very, very possible. Yeah. Out of many one. Yeah. So like in, instead of having all these parallel story threads that all we're going to start to see them all come together, like one super team, the Avengers coming together. That's a goofy set of Avengers right there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, like the B squad Avengers right there. <laughs> Right, right. You have Eleven, who's got legit powers. Then you got like, I, and I'm Murray. I speak Russian. And I'm Steve. I can swing a bat in my hand. And I'm Dustin. fix my hair. Yeah. <laughs> I can be snarky. <laughs> they all have. Right. It's just like, like. And I'm Erica. I'm 45 years old. <laughs> but I look like I'm You know, nine. if anybody's possessed, if anybody's possessed <laughs> hiding behind a person if we're not meant to know i think it's her because yeah. the fact that she's saying things that only an old person would say <laughs> right right absolutely so. all right well that's gonna do it for us thank you all for listening as always i'm patch he's adam and we are out of here